Welcome to Tell Me What You Know, a podcast sponsored by the Lufkin Daily News. I'm your host, Scott Skelton. On this podcast, I will be talking to interesting people doing interesting things. My goal is to have conversations with people who have compelling stories, experiences, and viewpoints. I hope you enjoy the dialogue. I'd like to welcome Trent Ashby to the inaugural podcast of Tell Me What You Know. Uh, Trent is the state representative uh, for our district, and welcome, Trent. Thank you, Scott. It's uh, great to be with you here on the inaugural podcast, and uh, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, well, um, it's a pleasure. You and I have known each other about, what, 15 years, and uh, even spent some time in the title company business together, so uh, I hope we have a good discussion. So what I want to do is kind of tell the folks who listen to our podcast a little bit about you and what you do. And we all know you're a state representative, but you didn't start there. That's right. It, it all really started back on the farm, didn't it? That's right. Back on back on the dairy farm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, some of your listeners may be aware and some not, but uh, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough uh, to grow up on a dairy farm uh, uh, about well, close to Henderson, a little community called Shake Rag. And, of course, most people won't find that on a map, but it's uh, about 12 mile, miles southwest of uh, Henderson as you go towards Jacksonville. And, and uh, yeah, so I grew up uh, there on a farm, and uh, my dad uh, had uh, been in the dairy business uh, before I came along, and, and uh, he just recently retired a few years ago uh, after 42 years of uh, milking cows and, and raising livestock. And, and it was... Uh, you know, it was a, a great uh, foundation uh, for me to to learn at a, a young age the uh, importance of having a strong work ethic and uh, not having in you know anything just handed to you. Uh, and so, uh, no, I, f- I feel real blessed to have uh, those those rural uh, roots and and uh, that upbringing. It certainly has shaped my perspective uh, um, on you know college decisions and, and, and job decisions, but certainly uh, shape my perspective on life as well. Yeah. How many, how many cows does a dairy farm like that have? Well, uh, my dad, uh, he averaged, uh, usually around a hundred cows. Um, you know, some months it might be a little over some months it might be a little, uh, under, uh, but, uh, you know, I would say, uh, for for that time frame back in the you know the eighties and nineties, that was uh, probably what I would consider in uh, in Texas probably kind of the average uh, family dairy farm in terms of herd size, and so uh, it was enough to keep us busy. I can so assure you, it's milking twice a day, right? Twice a day, three hundred sixty five days uh, a year. Uh, those cows don't take a vacation, and uh, consequently. Uh, I didn't have many vacations growing up. There wasn't a lot of summer. Uh, the family's going to get in the, the station wagon and go somewhere. So so was it, did you have to get up every morning before school? I did. I did. Uh, my schedule was uh, I had to uh, milk one morning every weekend um, when I was starting probably at about the age of uh, eight. <laughs> and uh, so that entailed uh, my dad waking me up about 3.30 in the morning. Oh, and uh, we'd have to be milking by four o'clock, and so uh, it usually took about three to three and a half hours to milk those cows. And so, uh, yeah, I did that uh, for until I graduated from high school, and then, um, you know, uh, again going back to the theme of my dad would never really give me anything. Uh, 
when I bought my first truck, when I turned 16, uh, he wouldn't give me the gasoline out of our gas tanks at the farm, which we had plenty of fuel, you know, diesel and gas. And so I'd have to get up every morning and be at the barn by six to get in an hour worth of milking just to pay for my gas. To get that gasoline I was, out yeah, of the tank. To get gasoline out of the fuel tank. So, uh, so you know, for me now, uh, you know, I guess it's just, you know, having grown up that way, I, you know, people talk about, you know, well, I'm going to sleep late this weekend or whatever. I, I don't think in my entire life, even if I haven't had anything to do on a Saturday morning, I don't think I've ever been able to sleep past 630 uh, in the morning. So yeah. it's just, I guess, bred into me now. A different kind of lifestyle. Lifestyle is kind of going away for a lot of people as we shift from a from a, a rural to a more urban area and something most kids don't ever experience anymore. And certainly I, I don't I don't suppose your boys have experienced that kind of life, uh, milking cows, uh, unless they uh, – you you taken them up there or taking them somewhere and done it? Yeah, I did. I, I both my wife Nikki and I we uh, when when my kids were younger and my dad had the dairy still operational, we did uh, get them up there uh, as often as we could to allow them to see you know uh, uh, that profession and the work that goes into it and uh, what real work looks like. what real work looks like. And yeah. so uh, we still. Um, we we uh, a number of years ago we bought a farm right up there next to my my dad's uh, my mom's deceased and so next to my dad's place and it's also right next to uh, uh, all of my sisters and so we have a little uh, area up there and um, I'm a tree farmer these days that's what we're doing uh, with our farm but uh, but we try to get our boys up there every chance we can uh, can just so they can again appreciate uh, you know really the the benefits and the uh, the blessings that come along with uh, with uh, rural lifestyle. Right, right. So went to Henderson High School. Is that right? That's right. Graduated what year? I graduated in 1991. All right. And and my dad grew up in in Austin in the early 50s, and he cleared land every summer. And he said it made me want to get an education. So I suspected uh, working on a dairy farm may have led you to want to get go to college. Absolutely, yeah. There, there, there was a strong incentive for me to uh, get get uh, away from the house, and so uh, I, my challenge was trying to find a college far enough to uh, that I didn't have to drive back and forth every weekend or every day uh, to work uh, all the time for my dad. And so, um, you know, I was uh, looking, and of course, uh, I was real involved in 4-H and FFA, and I had some scholarships that were coming through those two organizations. But one of the caveats was you had to be an ag major. And so uh, thinking about um, uh, ag degrees, uh, I was naturally kind of drawn towards Texas A&M. Uh, and uh, my older sister was already there. And so I um, made the decision there uh, really towards the end of my senior year. I was really uh, uh, waffling between both Texas Tech and Texas A&M. And in, at the very end there, I made the decision to, to go to College Station. Yeah. Well, and as they say, the rest is a little bit of history because you had a good career over there. But um, so, uh, what were you involved in in high school? What do you What do you do besides FFA and do you show animals? Did I you did play sports. What do you do? 
Uh, I really focused uh, in high school uh, more on on the in 4-H and FFA. I was, as I said earlier, uh, pretty involved in both those uh, youth organizations, and uh, still involved today with my two boys right. uh, in both 4-H and FFA. Something I'm really proud of. And uh, but no, I I um, I, uh, I I was so small. Uh, as uh, my my wife loves to tell the story, you know, just physically, I I didn't grow really until my senior year in high school, and and actually uh, my summer going into college, and so uh, from a uh, just physical stature standpoint, I um, I really was not a what I would consider a high school athlete. I did try uh, my freshman year to make the basketball team, and uh, I think I made about six weeks, and uh, then the coach cut me. So. Yeah, I, quick, I quickly realized that uh, I was probably not going to get a, uh, you know, scholarship offer to go play Division One or Division Two uh, college athletics. So I pivoted more towards uh, the uh, the youth agriculture organizations. So you were you were off to A and M. I assume you uh, majored in in ag or ag eco or which was what was it? Agriculture economics. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, I I've got a history degree from Abilene Christian and and. You know, not a, not an education degree, but just a straight history degree, kind of a vehicle to go to law school. So, tell me what ag eco, what they teach you over there at A and M about. Yeah, I I tell you, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of young people uh, that uh, go to college, you know, especially it seems like increasingly this is the case. You know, they go in, they're not knowing exactly. Of course, no one really does exactly what they want to do, and uh, and then and consequently, a lot of people end up changing majors two, three, four times uh, during their college career. That was not the case with me. I loved uh, my degree because about half my studies were in uh, agriculture, which of course was my background. And then the other half was over in the College of Business, uh, taking business courses, finance, and looking at economics. And uh, so I, I loved both uh of those uh, fields, if you will. And uh, what I loved ultimately was that when I uh, was, uh, uh, when I earned my degree, uh, (laughs) I knew I would have some options in terms of either going into more of a agricultural type uh, job or something more business or economics related. Right, right. Um, So we can't talk about Texas A&M without talking about the fact that you were a Yale leader. And not not only were you a Yale leader over there, you did something that's a little bit unusual as I understand it. You were a Yale leader who didn't come out of the core, right? Correct. And so, um, that's in, am I right that that's unusual? Yes, it, it is fairly unusual. I think uh, when you when you so I was a Yale leader elected in '94, so I served the '94 '95 uh, school year, and. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. And up to that time, uh, going back to 1970, uh, I guess so over that 25-year time frame, there had uh, I was the uh, I was the fifth, uh, what they call a non-reg yell leader elected. So, yeah, it's it was um, it had been pretty uh, uh, few and far between for a civilian to uh, to win. Uh, but b- behind my um, uh, privilege, I had to serve as yell leader. There, there have probably been another six or seven, uh, or maybe even more, and so uh, I think the the trend is uh, is somewhat dissipating in terms of uh, all the yellers having to be from the Corps of Cadets. But uh, I would tell you, it's incredible experience to represent the twelfth man uh, at all of our um, athletic and university events for that year, and um, and 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 I guess I should 
digress a second. So when you talk about yell eaters, uh, just uh, for those that uh, aren't Aggies, you know, fans or uh, or alumni, uh, there's five yell leaders. They're all elected by the student body there at A and M. There's three seniors and there's two juniors. And um, so I, I was the uh, I only got to do it for one year. I was that third guy, uh, my senior year, that got uh, elected. But it was an incredible experience. I made so many friends and just learned a lot uh, about uh, leadership and about dealing with people. And and uh, and honestly, it's probably one of the the um, neatest things that I've had to do that really uh, ha- helped me so much in terms of public speaking. Uh, yeah. Because you're constantly, you know, going out and talking to mothers' clubs and different groups on campus and off campus and and Aggie networking type uh, events, and so it really was a, a a fun time and something that uh, that I will always deeply cherish. Now, I think I've heard this story before. When when you you had to get elected, so you kind of had to run a campaign. Is that right? That's right. And so, you, were you dating Nikki at the time? I was. And and was I, my understanding is she was kind of instrumental as well in your campaign. Even, no, no, no doubt. No, absolutely, okay. she was. No, I, matter of fact, I would say that uh, Nikki, my wife, is is been instrumental in everything that I've achieved in life. Uh, and uh, we we dated pretty much our uh, we met our our both she's same uh, class as me at A and M and we met our sophomore year and uh, she's been at my side and, and biggest supporter the whole time but yeah I would I've told people somewhat jokingly and somewhat serious that if it hadn't been for her uh, helping me with uh, a lot of the male students on campus you know we're helping the doing the dorms and whatnot having her girlfriends you know going around and All campaigning right. for me I probably never would have been elected so uh, so she uh, she is a and she is just a talented uh, strategist really when it comes to uh, campaigning and and, uh, and of course that's continued uh, up through today and uh, but no there's no doubt that uh, that we had a lot of fun doing that yeah yeah. Well, so your time at A&M comes to an end, and you know one of the things that, that I know about you is you ended up in, in Washington, D.C., and were, were up there uh, when 9-11 happened. That's right. And um, you know, that had to be uh, just a surreal experience. Um, so tell us what Washington, D.C. felt like on 9-11 and what, what, what you saw or felt or whatever it was. September the 11th, 2001, was one of those days that, of course, everybody, I think, will remember uh, probably vividly where they were uh, when they got the news that uh, the, the, uh, the Twin Towers uh, uh, had been bombed. And then, of course, uh, the uh, the incident there in Washington at the Pentagon. And um, I was on uh, there uh, on Capitol Hill uh, in the congressional office that I was working in. Uh, when we first uh, saw the uh, first plane hit uh, there in New York. And, um, you know, and it was a surreal experience because people were uh, confused. Uh, They were scared. Uh, No one knew quite exactly what to do. And then, of course, the uh, as the media started reporting the events as they unfolded that morning, um, it, you know, it became... um, evident that Washington, D.C. was also a target. And uh, when you start thinking about targets in Washington, clearly the Capitol uh, would, would you would think, would uh, have been a, a primary target. And so uh, at that point, uh, the Capitol Police uh, 
uh, in trying to control the hysteria that was going on, you know, uh, ordered a mandatory evacuation of all the Capitol complex. And so uh, everybody was trying to make their way out of the buildings. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it just, it's, it's one of those moments that, you know, it's hard to explain because you're, you're sitting there, you're thinking, you know, I'm at the, the, the epicenter of the power of the free world in Washington, D.C., and, um, and here we are under attack on our own homeland. And so, uh, fortunately, uh, uh, we were able to uh, evacuate and get to a safe place, um, and uh, there wasn't um, another uh, plane that hit, that hit the Capitol. But there's no question that 9-11 was, is one of the defining moments of my life. And as a matter of fact, um, I mean, within days after that uh, occurrence, uh, Nikki and I uh, decided that uh, we really wanted to start moving forward with uh, you know, starting a family and figuring out how to get back to Texas because, you know, it really crystallized for me and for a lot of people uh, what was important about life and what right. your priorities should be. Right. And so, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, family um, and kind of getting back home became our top priority. And so, right. um, so anyway, September 11th, uh, again, is... Uh, is one of those things that uh, one of those events that um, uh, will 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 always uh, be something that uh, you know I look back on and and uh, and thank God that you know that uh, even though we we had some tr- some fatalities and tragedies uh, across our country uh, that it wasn't greater. Right, I, I remember thinking that this is just going to be. A lot. It was terrible as it was, but you know, hoping that it wasn't into the tens of thousands and. And, and thank God that it wasn't. But um, I've been to New York and been through the museum, and, and it's just an experience that everybody needs to go through because we shouldn't forget about it. And, and, and frankly, the museum is not what you would call fun to go through, but it's one of those things that just every kid needs to go through it to understand what happened on that day and the sacrifices that were made. So, so you, you, you know... So that crystallized your your thought process to come back to East Texas, and and so you come back to East Texas, and and it's uh, you go to work for the Texas Forest Country Partnership. Was that the first job back in East Texas? It was. Uh, it was uh, at the, of course that was the precursor to that was the uh, the Deep East Texas Development Association, right? Which became the Piney Woods Economic Partnership, and then eventually, and now it's evolved uh, to uh, the Texas Forest Country Partnership. That's right. correct. Spent some time there, uh, spent some time in the title company business, and then now in banking with uh, Citizens National Bank, a bank that's kind of based out of your hometown. Right. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, as I tell people, uh, especially when I have a chance to talk to younger people that are a little unsure about, you know, the pathway and what, you know, which direction they need to go in life, you know, I always remind them that God has a plan. And, uh, you know, for example, I remember, and this is going back almost full circle to where we started this podcast, but uh, when I was nine years old and uh, showing in the Russ County Youth Project show, I remember that uh, Citizens National Bank, which was based out of Henderson, my hometown, uh, bought my pig. And so here we are now, me working for Citizens uh, out of of Lufkin, and uh, one of the great joys that I get every year is going out to the Angelina County Youth Fair, as well as, uh, now that's with with both my hat and then my banking hat on, but also as the 
uh, representing five other counties, I, I make it a priority every year to try to hit every county fair and do all I can to support our youth and, and the work that they put into their, their projects. Right. And the people of Lufkin will probably remember um, that before you ran your first race to be state representative, you, you ran another race uh, and, and were elected to the Lufkin ISD school board. And uh, I, I served on there with you just a, a short time before you, you uh, went to your state office. But uh, how many years were you on the school board? I was on the school board uh, just under six years yeah. before I, I had to resign. Yeah, and I remember you and I having a lot of talks about that and how, you know, you're one of seven votes and how, you know, how all that works uh, before I actually ran. And so you were so right about uh, everything you told me. But what motivated you to uh, to run for the school board? Well, um, <clears throat> it really was a culmination of a couple of things. Um, I... Um, I really, at the time, didn't, I mean, I wasn't interested, per se, in running for the school board, but I had a, a couple of, uh, uh, of uh, gentlemen here in this community come and visit with me about, you know, my interest in running for the school board, and and, uh, and we talked about it, and then I went home and talked to Nikki, and, and we prayed on it for a few days, and then, you know, shortly after, after I guess, a week or so, um, you know, I said, you know, this is, this is what our, our, my oldest son was about to start right. kindergarten. And I thought, well, you know, this, this might be a great way for me to, uh, be involved in something that could help not only benefit my children, my two boys, uh, in terms of their schools, but also, you know, all the kids, uh, in, in the Lufkin Independent School District. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I ran and, and, uh, you know, and you know, this guy, cause we have talked a lot about it and, and, uh, um, and I will tell you, and I tell people all the time, uh, one of the best places to serve is on a school board. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, looking back, it was, uh, it was, you know, it will always be one of the, uh, the, the, uh, greatest and, and best decisions I ever made was to, to serve on a school board. Um, I learned so much about governance, right? about, you talked about being one of seven that, um, you have to work as a team, right? Majority rules, and just because you want something doesn't mean it's going to happen. And uh, and you know, and I've told people, and of course, you can't say this categorically, but uh, honestly, um, serving on the school board and 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 serving in a local elected capacity first was probably the greatest uh, uh, blessing the good Lord put in front of me because it really did teach me a lot of things about, you know, how to govern, how to work with people, how to work with fellow elected officials and, um, realizing you don't get everything you want. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've just always got to do your best and, and, and work and try to work as a team. Right. Right. They call it a team of eight for a reason. You know, the seven school board members and the superintendent trying to lead the district, uh, govern the district. And, uh, so, you know, I have my, my personal thoughts on what the hardest part of being on the school board is or and in your case was what would you say the hardest part was i bet you do mr president <laughs> of the school board i bet you do have uh some thoughts on that uh you know i will tell you um i was blessed to uh to serve with such a great team uh i mean truly all six of the other individuals were team members without an agenda a personal agenda uh they just wanted what was best uh, the superintendent roy knight at the time 
Um, you know, he uh, he did an incredible job. He told me one time, he said, Trini, if I bring something to the board and um, and it fails, he said, then I've failed to do my job. He said, I've got to make sure that the board understands and believes in what we're trying to do uh, before we move forward with any actions. And so we had a harmonious time while I was on the board. Uh, probably, and this is not... Uh, uh, I guess in one sense it could have been, could be considered a challenge, but I frankly think it was probably our greatest accomplishment while I was on the board was uh, when we uh, passed uh, the uh, the it was forty nine point five million dollar bond, right? Um, and you would probably remember the year because that that was the last one before y'all passed. Yeah, something like twelve years before that we just passed the last one, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and that was something that was so desperately needed. Um, and, of course, you know, Lufkin's not immune. I mean, every school district goes through this from time to time where, you're, where you have uh, antiquated infrastructure and, or security upgrades, uh, something that we, we could talk about later as far as school safety, which will be a big issue this coming session. But, you know, you've, you, you have to do what you have to do to keep our, our, our children safe. And, and, um, and, and we did that and partly in that bond was to improve and upgrade the security around our campuses and right. something that, uh, uh, looking back on, uh, I'm very uh, proud to have played a small role in that. Now, people will remember that was the bond that basically enclosed all of the schools. We got rid of most of the external hallways and external open doors in, in our primary and elementary school campuses. Uh, that was the bond that you guys passed to do that. And then, of course, we recently passed the $75 million bond, which is primarily to get rid of the 22 buildings and 110 entrances to the middle school, which is obviously a safety issue. So I would agree with you, though, on, on the school board. I've been fortunate after uh, you were on there and continuing to today. You know, everybody has been in, in the Lufkin board, has always been a team member uh, willing to to work with each other. We've been blessed as a community, I think, to have that kind of board. And and I think when um, you pass bond elections by as much as you guys did back then and, and we did recently, you know that the community must be buying into the direction that the administration and the board are hopefully setting. Right. So, so you're on the school board and... Um, you know, I can't remember the exact events, but uh, there had been some redistricting, and is that right? Mm-hmm. And then the, this district is it is 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 your district essentially the same as it was back then, or how has that changed? No, our uh, in the, so in the 2011 session, um, which is the session before I ran uh, for uh, for this position. Uh, they did go through the uh, decennial redistricting process where they look at redrawing all the boundaries for every 150 House districts, 31 Senate districts, uh, and, and, and currently 36 congressional districts in Texas. And um, so in that process, uh, our district uh, uh, went from uh, four counties uh, where it was really Angelina and then going down south more uh, to Tyler, um, and uh, San Jacinto and Polk, I right. believe, were the counties that were in the district at the time. And uh, that legislature made the decision to redraw that district, and they put Angelina in with um, <clears throat> with five new counties. Uh, I say that San Augustine may have been in that district because now our district is uh, San Augustine, Angelina, and then it's Houston, uh, which uh, at that time had a different state rep in 2011, um, and then uh, Trinity. 
who had a different state rep, and then Leon and Madison, uh, who shared another different state rep. So they uh, they really completely redrew this district as well as some of the districts around us uh, back in 2011. And then, so you ran for this new district that essentially had never had, uh, there wasn't really an incumbent of this district. It was, there was an incumbent that was west of here that had a couple of the counties. And then other than that, it was kind of all new. Is that, is that my memory right? Yeah. Uh, so there, there technically was uh, the incumbent at the time uh, that was out west. Uh, but again, uh, the, the incumbent uh, then was inheriting four new counties, right. which was uh, approximately, uh, you know, 75% new population. Uh, right. So, in one sense, it really was almost like an open uh, open district. Right. So, tell me about that race. Tell me what you remember. It's been a while back, and you've had a couple more since then, but tell me what you remember about running for, for you know, state representative the, the first time. Well, <clears throat> it was, uh, I mean, it was a full-blown race. I mean, anytime you challenge an incumbent uh, that was well-financed uh, or that is well-financed, uh, it's uh, <clears throat> it's always a Herculean task to try to, uh, to, to, to you know, be successful. And so, um, you know, again, just it's different magnitude, but, uh, you know, whether it's one county or one city or, in this case, six counties for a house state house district, uh, you know, you just got to get to know the people and they've got to get to know you. And so the challenge is, is, is you know, work in these counties uh, showing up at every event that you can get to, uh, which means that, uh, you know, time management is extremely important. And, uh, uh, but, but I will tell you, uh, you know, looking back on, uh, 2000, um, I guess late 2011, 2012, uh, during that election, um, one of the, the single greatest, uh, events that I've ever been a part of was that campaign and that, it uh, it just taught me so much about people, about how to uh, you know interact with people, um, and and just about to, again going back to something I learned on the dairy. I mean the, the importance of hard work, and that if you will work hard and and you know act in a in a, a manner that people expect and and you know tell people. And I tell people when you're running for a political office, you know uh, you know tell people what you stand for. You know. Uh, and that was one of the differences between my opponent at the time is that I refused to go negative. And, um, and uh, I think people were really drawn to because I had a lot of people tell me that I'm going to support you because you're not going negative and you're not slinging mud. And so whether it's a local office, state or federal office, I tell people all the time, if you're going to run, run a positive campaign. That's what people are drawn to. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear what you stand for, what your vision is for that office, what you plan to do. And, um, and, and stay away from all the divisive politics that's, you know, unfortunately uh, corrupting a lot of the, um, the willingness of people to want to serve these days. And so, uh, so I, I really enjoyed that campaign. Fortunately, uh, the good Lord blessed us uh, with a, a victory. Um, but I do want to uh, uh, mention, you know, a lot of people say, well, why did you run? Well, it goes back to, you know, sitting in the seat that you're in, which is over, you know, I was on, on the school board. And, you know, in 2011, that was the first time that the Texas legislature had ever um, cut funding for public schools. Ah. And so there were so many, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people around the state, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that were really, um, uh, just to say deeply disappointed is probably an understatement, but just mad, upset, angry about, you know, why are we 
you know, cutting funds uh, for our public schools and, and we're growing at 160,000 kids every other year in our public schools. And, and so if you served on the school board at that time, you were upset right? and, uh, and not happy. And I was one of those and, and our school board collectively, we, we had a big discussion about it and, you know, we were saying somebody needs to, you know, run and fix this. And, and, uh, everybody started pointing at me and of course, uh, um, I uh, I was up for the challenge, and as they say, the rest is history. Right. Well, and I I feel like that we we last cycle just you know months ago we we had a similar experience in the state of Texas. I think you know I think the the educators and especially the teachers uh, really voted and voted in a manner that that maybe sent a message. And we've had this we've had this uh, what I call blue ribbon committee or panel that's just given. Uh, their recommendations on school funding that, that you guys in the legislature are going to go back and, I guess, consider. And uh, the governor issued a press release the uh, day before yesterday, I believe, about additional funding for education. So uh, do you think that that, that that cycle is what I think it was? Maybe maybe some shifts in, in thinking got some attention? I do. I do. I think... Uh I think this uh, most recent election cycle uh, here uh, in November of this 2018, uh, I think it was a wake-up call um, for both incumbents and as well as those that are coming into office, uh, in, in, uh, at least in the state of Texas. Uh, and there's no question when uh, the, uh, the prognosticators and the pundits and everybody uh, – you know, finally uh, had a chance to look at the results uh, the the day and in, in week or so after the election, and looking at who voted and, and the patterns there. Um, education was a key theme that uh, that drew people uh, record turnouts uh, in a lot of parts of the state, uh, and um, and it was because people want to want to see some change uh, in different areas, but especially in this area, we we're talking about education. Uh, and, and, and it's not just one, you know, education is such a broad topic, right. uh, but whether it's school funding, whether it's, uh, active and retired teacher health care, whether it's, uh, you know, over testing and high stakes testing reform, um, whether it's, uh, you know, property tax relief, uh, as you know, of course, uh, property taxes being the, the primary component that funds our schools, uh, I mean, there's just a, a lot of reasons under the education umbrella that that people voted, and um, and certainly I took note of that, uh, and um, and I think consequently <coughs> next session I think you're going to see uh, school finance uh, has a, which has already uh, been given quite a bit of attention by our, our new presumptive speaker of the house as well as the governor and lieutenant governor. I think you're going to see it being a central theme for this coming session as well as a lot of the other education issues that uh, uh, that have been mentioned. Well, as you can imagine, a lot of people are going to be watching that. And for the record, coming out of the school board that you did, having personally seen what it takes to run a district like Lufkin and Hudson and Central and Huntington and Zavala, I mean, you know what it takes because you've met with those superintendents and you know their board members. You've always been a supporter, and for that, we thank you. But But we have a you know, we have a tough time convincing some people that that it's that it's the, the value that it is, especially in rural Texas, because you know we public schools are community here. So, so thanks for all your hard work. So, I want to back up a little bit. You, you know, you you start you're you're brand new, you're a freshman, 
you're you're in the legislature. I assume you go over there and somebody shows you where you're gonna your office is gonna be and just tell me what you were thinking. You're 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 one of 150 people in the house and there's probably 25 million people in the state of Texas. So you're in fairly uh, rarefied air over there as far as uh, of a small cadre of people who who are going to set the policy for our state. Yeah, so when I when I first walked in um, to the Capitol uh, to, to try to find my new office, uh, I was just awestruck uh, at the uh, the magnitude of, of the uh, responsibility, frankly, that uh, had been put on on me. And, uh, and you know, I tell you something that's kind of neat is that even to this day, when I go over to our Capitol uh, to, you know, whether it's, you know, to go to the office or any other part of the Capitol, I still get that, uh, that feeling of uh, just um, incredible, uh, ble- you know, blessings to, to, to be able to uh, temporarily say that I have an office over there. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, the, the, the first, uh, you know, few times I was in the Capitol, I mean, I don't mind telling everybody I got lost. Absolutely, I got lost. You, and, you know, you, you, you're trying to find the bathrooms. You, you go down one hallway and you think, I thought my office was on this hallway. And you come to find out it's on completely the other side of the annex. And so when you're underground right. there in the Capitol annex, it's hard to keep your bearings. And I, I've, I'm, you know, country boy. And so I can always kind of kind of look up and, you know, the sun or where and I kind of get my direction, east, west, north, south. But when you're underground, you can't. Right. And so it takes a little while to... Uh, uh, to get your bearings there, but uh, but no, it. Uh, I mean, and I tell people all the time. You know, it's not my office; it's our office. It belongs to the the constituents of our house district. Uh, I just you know had temporarily have my little name on our name on a placard out in the office, but that office belongs to you know your listeners as much as it does me, as well as that seat on the floor, our desk on the floor, and so uh, as we are looking at January coming up here in a few weeks. Uh, January the 8th, we'll be uh, taking the office and, and going in for the 86th legislative session uh, in Texas. And uh, for 140 days, we're going to be over there doing the people's business. And And I hope that, uh, uh, you know, I hope your listeners uh, will consider uh, if there's any way between, you know, early January to, you know, the first part of June, you know, come over there, visit your capital, bring your grandkids, your kids, uh, your mama, whoever, and uh, and let us know you're coming. We can help. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, some of the 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 neatest, uh, I guess, the best feeling comments I hear from people is like, "Hey, man, thanks for uh, helping set up a tour of the Capitol. Right. My my family had a great time over there in Austin. Thanks for all you do to you know set up a tour and you know tell us to go out and view the." The state cemetery, for example, or the or the Bullock Museum, you know, things that you may not necessarily think of, but we can really, uh, my staff and I, we can really help uh, coordinate a a a, a trip for there for people that want to come over and see their capital and visit Austin and and uh, and make it something they'll always remember. Yeah, and the perfect time to do that would be, <clears throat> pardon me, the perfect time to do that would be February the twentieth, when go. all of Angelina County is going to be over there for Luck and Angelina County Day. Your staff, uh, as well as the staff of Senator Nichols, has you know set up some great times. We're going to have a speaker from the Texas Supreme Court, Justice Jeff Boyd. So you know that's a perfect day. If you if you don't want to go, go February twentieth, and 
and watch uh, you and your staff uh, host us over there. So that's much appreciated. So <clears throat> before I move on to what's coming up in this session, so you're a brand new member. Uh, do you just go like traipse around and, and find all the nooks and crannies? And, you know, I, I understand you can go up into the to the rotunda of the Capitol. Have you done all that since your time over there and just kind of seen the, all the history? I have. Uh, I, I, matter of fact, uh, I, several times a year I try to always do something new, something different, you know, that, that has uh, history, whether it's with the Capitol or just something that's historical in Austin, um, because there is so much history over there, not just on, you know, at the Capitol, Capitol complex. And so I'm always looking to try something and do something different uh, while I'm there. But yes, I have that first uh, uh, term, two-year term while I was over there, uh, I really took advantage to try to immerse myself in the history of the Capitol, uh, looked all around. I can't say I hit every crook and cranny in the Capitol, but we hit a lot of them. And, um, you know, I just uh, I wanted to, while I've been given this uh, this uh, opportunity to take advantage of it. And, and and I'm a I'm a history buff anyway. And so I just I love going over there and looking around and reading, you know, the different plaques on the walls, as well as looking at all the portraits of, you know, whether the former governors all the way down to former House and Senate members and who who was from you know, you know, Angelina or Trinity or, or San Augustine or whatever county right. uh, across East Texas and and uh, and trying to match up last names with people I might know that still live over in this uh, neck of the woods. And so, uh, no, it's a it's a it continues to be uh, a place of amazement and, and a lot of fun for me. Right. Right. It's almost like night at the museums sometimes <laughs> over there, especially if you go over there when people aren't in session and there's crowds are a little less and you can kind of, right. you know, walk around with you or somebody that knows something about the building. So we just had a, a, a speaker's race. You know, I guess it's not technically over until you guys elect a speaker of the house, but it, it sounds like it's over from the news reports. Tell us, tell the, the listeners why there there's a speaker's race and what it means and, and kind of how one goes uh, uh, about that, because it, it's it's kind of in the open, but it's something that only you guys do. So, so tell us, a, tell the listeners what it means to elect a speaker and how that process does, goes about. Great question. Uh, the the speaker of the house is the presiding officer uh, of the Texas House, and they. Uh, 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 are considered one of the big three, uh, along with the lieutenant governor and the governor of our great state. And uh, the speaker, unlike the other two that I just mentioned, uh, is unique in that it's not elected statewide. It is a, uh, elected by uh, 150 people, and those are the members of the Texas House. And so uh, we uh, we get to go over and cast a vote. Uh, the first vote of every session is is for our speaker and who uh, who that will be for the, uh, the upcoming two, that two year term. Um, and so since, um, uh, I guess for the last five sessions, uh, 10 years, uh, and certainly since I've been there for uh, three terms now, the speaker, uh, has been a gentleman named Joe Strauss from San Antonio. And, uh, he announced he was retiring, um, late last year or the latter part of last year. And, uh, and so there has been a race, uh, uh, over the really that's unfolded over basically the last 12 months. And then uh, all that has culminated, uh, and I think uh, it was literally a week after the election, 
um, a representative named Dennis Bonin uh, from Angleton down on the coast uh, who's been there, I think, for 10 terms, uh, quite a while. Um, he, uh, he required uh, the or um, secured the requisite number of votes, which, of course, 76 is a majority in a 150-member house. And so he laid out a list of 109 uh, people that were publicly saying, you know, I'm going to vote for uh, Representative Bonin, uh, you know, Speaker-elect Bonin, I guess, when you have that many signatures, uh, come January 8th when we when we, we cast that vote. And I was on that list, and I was proud to serve on that list. Uh, Dennis is, uh, has been a great member uh, to work with since I've been in the Texas House. Uh, he is uh, very uh, fair. Um, he's a very strong leader. And, um, I, you know, from a fairly rural part of the state down there. Uh, so, uh, and one thing that uh, is interesting is that uh, his wife is uh, from Longview. And so uh, his in-laws still live in Longview. And so he's up uh, through Lufkin and, and uh, this part of East Texas all the time, uh, seeing his, uh, his family and relatives up there. And so Dennis is keenly aware of... Uh, of uh, the Forest Country area and and uh, this county and so um, anyway I, I I'm I'm confident in uh, his abilities to lead the house uh, forward and uh, I'm really excited to cast my vote for him on January the eighth. Yeah, so he's been Speaker Pro Tem for the last uh, right. little bit on Strauss's team, so he's seen it all operate. Uh, you you uh, were. Uh, uh, a Strauss guy, I guess I, I would call you. You worked on his team. Uh, you had some nice committee appointments. Didn't you end up on calendars? I did. So uh, that's that's a for those that don't know, that's a big committee because it decides w- which bills get voted on on which day. And so um, I'm assuming you've worked with him and know him and 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 know how he operates. I, I do. As I said, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with Dennis since, since I've been in the legislature. And, uh, you know, he has uh, always been, um, you know, uh, willing to, to work with members from both parties. Uh, he certainly uh, has always uh, been very cognizant and sensitive to rural Texas. And uh, the fact that sometimes our uh, needs and wants and ask are different than uh, uh, some of the urban, suburban parts of the state. And so, as I said, I, I'm, I'm very comfortable uh, with uh, with Representative Bonin uh, leading the House, and and I think uh, he's going to uh, to really make a superb uh, Speaker of the House when we convene in January. So when you do convene in January, I I, I know um, you know the the Senate's going to have its ideas, and and Speaker Bonin's going to lead the House. But what do you think right now? I mean, we talked a little bit about Pub Ed, and we'll we'll get back to public education. But what do you think the other things? Are going to be that are going to be the drivers, the priorities for the session. Well, I'll, I'm setting aside education. Um, you know, the the only the only bill that we have to pass every session is a state budget that uh, will, that funds our state government for two years, and so uh, that uh, will always every session be top of the list. Uh, you know, we we have to get a balanced budget, and unlike uh, uh, you know our our colleagues in Washington D.C. Uh, and some other states, uh, our Constitution requires that we do pass a balanced budget. So we will pass a balanced budget that will keep uh, our um, 
our uh, state running for the next two years. That certainly will, will be a top priority. Um, and just to, um, and, and I guess in keeping with my annual theme of the issues that are important to our district in East Texas, you know, water is always going to be a, a big issue for East Texas. Uh, so, you know, I'll continue to work to safeguard uh, the natural resources for this region. Uh, transportation, uh, fast-growing state. Our region, again, continues to grow. Um, you know, we need to make sure and really to boil it down. Uh, and this is the same for every part of the state. But, you know, everybody wants their fair share of the transportation dollars that are flowing. And so, uh, you know, part of my job will be to make sure that, you know, you know our district in East Texas, uh, a little more broadly, continue to uh, reap the benefit from some of the uh, – things that uh, the citizens have voted are voted on over the last few years in terms of constitutional amendments that have brought additional dollars uh, to our transportation infrastructure. And this is where I should give a shout out to our Senator Robert Nichols because he's really been the champion that has led those efforts and, uh, and uh, just does an amazing job for East Texas there as our state senator. Uh, but in addition to those, what I call the big three, education, transportation, and water, um, let me mention a few things that are, I don't want to say they're going to be new this session, but I think they're going to be hotter topics, uh, or and some may be, one or two may be new topics this session, but some issues that I'm going to be keenly involved with and, and working on, and that is um, eminent domain reform. Uh, last session, I filed a couple of bills on eminent domain, uh, along with some of my other colleagues, primarily, again, from rural Texas. Uh, we have got to do a better job of ensuring a level playing field for our our uh, private landowners across this state. Uh, and uh, so I think you'll continue, I, I'm confident you'll continue to see um, some work being done, and this may be the session we get a, a comprehensive eminent domain bill passed. You know, our country and Texas has not escaped the wrath of this, but we are in the midst of an opioid crisis. And um, we had a select committee during this past, or I guess currently the current interim, uh, to study uh the opioid epidemic as well as substance abuse uh, that is happening across the state of Texas. And um, I'm really looking forward to digging in uh, into the findings from this committee as they uh, produce their report here over the next week or two and, um, and seeing what we can do to combat that. And just to kind of put thing, that in perspective, Scott, for your listeners, um, so uh, when you talk about drug overdoses uh, in Texas. And uh, I've seen two different studies. One says that over 50%, the other says about 60% of all those overdoses that lead into deaths are a direct result of opioid abuse. So it's maybe the most abused drugs drug that is out there. And in real terms, that means that about on any given day in Texas, uh, we lose four Texans to death due to opioid uh, abuse. And so uh, it's something that we really uh, need to uh, consider some policy, public policy uh, on. And uh, I know that uh, a lot of my colleagues are talking about this. And so I do think that uh, you're going to hear uh, some about uh, um possibly some policy solutions on what Texas can do to deal with the opioid crisis that we are experiencing. Uh, two other quick issues I'll mention that are big for me. Um, you know, over the last few sessions, I've had a seat at the table 
to uh, hear from a lot of our universities and community colleges and institutions of higher education uh, on a variety of issues. But one of the issues, when you drill it down, that we've got to do a better job on in Texas, uh, because I hear from a lot of parents um, and and our, our young people on, is college affordability. And um, I, I'm convinced that Texas can do better in terms of uh, making college uh, more affordable and realistic uh, for people that want to go uh, earn a, whether it's a degree or a, a certificate. And so we have got to do, uh, I think, a better job in terms of college affordability. And so that's going to be a, a priority issue for me. And the last one, uh, which I could have put at the top of the list uh, because it's impacting people all around us and in, included uh, here in Angelina County, and that is the crisis and truly a crisis that we're facing in rural health care. Uh, we're seeing uh, many of our rural hospitals and clinics shuttering across the state. Um, and it's not just necessarily in rural areas, although it is really acute in rural area or rural Texas. And, um, you know, I've been giving lip service to this issue over the last, say, 12 months. I've been hearing more and more people talk about it. Uh, there was a study that just got rolled out in the last uh, week to two weeks from Texas A&M's uh, Rural Health Center uh, in terms of helping us kind of think through maybe some policy ideas uh, to help. And, and, of course, when you talk about rural health care, it's not just something the state of Texas alone can fix. Now, we can take some rifle shot approaches, which is what I'm talking about, but there's obviously a huge federal component to health care. And, uh, and, of course, that's in, in uh, chaos uh, with the, uh, the recent court ruling uh, on Obamacare. So um, I would say, just more broadly speaking, that uh, health care is one of the biggest challenges that uh, this country faces, our state faces, uh, and um, we can't fix it all in Texas as far as, again, we can only control what we can control, but we're going to have to do some things at the state level absent the federal government doing something that allow our citizens to have access to rural health care, especially in rural Texas. Right, right. Now, I've got a daughter in medical school, and and they're producing about 2,000 new doctors a year in the state of Texas. And the state of Texas does a, a good job of giving priority to, to citizens of the state of Texas and to, to medical schools. But, but 2,000 new doctors a year is just not going to cut it for our population growth and the retirement of elderly, elderly doctors or doctors of retirement age. And then the, the number of those that are just going to go into general or family practice is even less than the 2,000. So we, we really do have you know, uh, some policy decisions to, to make and, some, and some, some directions to look at. So I can imagine that that is. And the, the opioid crisis, we hear all the time about, you know, what's going on. We usually hear uh, a lot about the Appalachian states because it appears to be even worse over there. And, you know, I'm thankful that I haven't had any personal uh, dealings with that, either friends or family members, but a lot of people have. And, and you know, I don't know how you guys get a handle on that, but but it, it, it is something that's just run crazy through our, our entire country. Um, but let's, do, let's turn to public education because, you know, I, I'm assuming you've seen at least, if not the entire report, some blurbs from the report. Uh, Dr. Kevin Ellis, who's on the State Board of Education, was a member of that committee. Uh, I've talked to him. He, it seems like that's all he did. I don't know how he earned a living because... He's got that great non-paying job with State Board of Education, and he spent all his time working for the state on this committee. But what did you see out of there that you see that we can do or 
or the direction we're going to go? Kind of tell me your thoughts on the whole process. Well, you know, I think when you really drill down into uh, what the, I think it was 48-page report uh, presented, you know, it, it really, there, there's there's several different facets of that report, you know, broken down into sections. And, and so I'm going to just quickly mention one or two that I think stand out. Uh, one is on, on just the, the funding side. Um, you know, th- there's going to be a healthy debate this coming session uh, on, on terms of what adequacy looks like in terms of school funding. You know what we what that number needs to be, and the report didn't give us uh, an indication really about what that number needs to be. Now, there's a lot of different interest groups and elected officials that have numbers in mind, but uh, they're all over the board. And so, I think you know when you boil it all down, I think the one of the biggest uh, um, points of contention in this discussion on school finance is going to be what is the number that we need to be funding. Uh, our our students at in our public schools. So that's one. Secondly, you've got the issue of uh, charter, I mean, not, I mean, of uh, recapture, uh, which people call Robin Hood, uh, you know, taking uh, money from wealthier school districts and equalizing that across all school districts uh, to try to, uh, you know, bring equity uh, into the system. Uh, that issue is, is going to be front and center. And it is every time, you know, the state looks at rewriting our school finance laws. And so it won't be a unique debate, but it will be uh, everybody will, will have their own uh, interpretation as what that equity should look like, equity being the key word there. And, uh, and there's no question for rural Texas, in my district in particular, uh, that is a driving component is to ensure that we have uh, greater equity uh, because, as I contend, uh, uh, and I think just morally, I mean, I think that uh, the state has an obligation to make sure that, you know, the, the students uh, across uh, East Texas, no matter what the school district or the county, that they have access to a quality education. And just because their zip code might be different than uh, some of the wealthier, more affluent areas of the state, that they shouldn't be penalized for that. And so I think, uh, again, general consensus is that the rural guys are, are going to, you know, certainly be um, pounding on the equity uh, uh, drum pretty loudly. And then uh, I think we're going to uh, have a, a very interesting discussion, something I don't know if we've really done heretofore in terms of uh, tying funding for our schools with um, the academic success or the testing, testing results, uh, something that uh, the governor has been promoting. Uh, and I know that that will uh, will yield a, a lot of uh, debate and discussion. Um, and then I guess, lastly, I would just say that uh, you know I think for me, uh, you can't talk about school finance and funding funding public education without also recognizing that the largest funding source is property taxes, and one of the most common themes I hear, no matter what the audience is or what county I'm in, is people want property tax relief. And I would love nothing more than to provide people in my district and across state with meaningful property tax relief. And the only way that can occur is we're going to have to uh, 
go back to where we were a number of years ago where the state was funding about 50% of public education cost in Texas and local property taxpayers were paying the other 50%. Today, the state share is down to uh, almost 37%. Percent, yeah. And so all that's done is put the, the pressure on local school board members and the local taxpayers to foot a, great, a greater portion of the bill. And so if we can uh, use more state sales tax dollars and other sources of revenue uh, uh, to fund our schools, then I think that we'll be able to show and, and, and provide our um, citizens across the state uh, with some property tax relief, something that I, I'm is certainly that I'm I'm very supportive of and it's priority of. So uh, I, I think when you again, but when you start you know talking about property taxes and you start talking about quality of uh, you know kids' education, uh, you, you're talking about some very personal issues with people, and so uh, that's where you know, we'll have a, a very healthy and and uh, I'm sure rigorous debate, and um, you know I'm looking forward to being a part of that discussion. So the session starts on January 8th. Right. And runs 140 days. 140 days. And you guys call it sine die? Sine die. Journ uh, without a day is what that means in Latin. And uh, um, so that'll be sometime in June, right? It, it will be. I haven't looked at the calendar, Scott. It's, it's usually around the first week of June. Occasionally, uh, it seems like one year we got out the very end of May. So it'll be right around June 1st. Uh, and then at that point, uh, we're done with the regular session. Uh, in theory, uh, we get to come home and and uh, reconnect with our families and jobs and and uh, and you know go back to living uh, uh, back in our communities. Um, but all that's subject to change uh, if uh, if the governor and only the governor uh, decides to call a special session. And historically, when we need to have a special session, those usually follow very closely on the heels of the regular session. So if there is a need for a special session, my guess is uh, it would uh, probably end up being called for June or July. And, and those can only last for 30 days. And then if we don't get whatever has to be done in that 30 days, then the governor can keep calling those for 30 additional days. But uh, that's uh, that's the way the the process would work there. But uh, but no, I, I'm I'm always prayerful and hopeful that after those 140 days that I get to come back home and and uh, and tell people what we've done uh, during that session and and uh, see my family and spend some time uh, with my friends and whatnot and 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 honestly uh, get back to my my paying job. You know, a lot of people don't appreciate the unique nature of our state legislators in Texas. In the way that our forefathers set up our system of government. I mean, we're considered part-time citizen legislators, which means that we don't meet every year. We meet uh, once every two years for 140 days. We pass the laws that need to be passed or repeal the laws that need to be repealed, and then we get the heck out of Dodge. We go back home, and we live under the laws that we create, uh, and it's a system that, frankly, has worked uh, beautifully well for centuries now, and so... Uh, um, Again, unlike, and while I'm on this topic, unlike a lot of states and certainly our, our federal government, um, you know, we pay our, our, our state representative and senator $600 a month. You know, that's the – so you can't make a living doing this job, and, and, uh, and, and so no one does it for the money. And so uh, that, that also uh, ensures that, uh, that, you know, that people, um, they get back home and, and they get to work and do their jobs and – and whatnot, and are meaningful employed unless you know unless they haven't been retired. Right, right. Yeah, it keeps you from really uh, you, the other 
year and a half that you're that you're not in session you you really are you know among the community working at your day job uh you know going to your church you're not you know it seems like our folks in washington dc if they're not flying back and forth to their district to make a speech they're over at a, a building raising money to, for the next election but but that's another topic and that's not our state legislature you know so you know we appreciate i i know personally from from knowing several state legislators including you how hard it is you got two fairly young boys uh your boys are uh, one's a sophomore, is that right, or a junior now? He's a junior. I have my, then, my oldest is a junior. My youngest is in eighth grade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so how's it parenting uh, two uh, young teenage two ne- teenage boys? <laughs> how, how are you and Nikki doing at that? Uh, yeah. All, all your listeners that are parents with teenagers are dying to hear the answer to this question. Uh, you know, parenting is uh, it's uh, of course it's probably the greatest challenge that any of us face, uh, both uh, in terms of both the the challenges you deal with, but also it's most rewarding. And so uh, we're Nikki and I are, are blessed with uh, with our two boys, and and they're growing up to be fine young men. And uh, but uh, but but there's some strong parenting that goes in there, and some discipline, and and uh, no question that uh, we're we're dealing with teenagers at our house now, which has been a, a little bit of a, a transition from when they were, you know, younger. Right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I love being a dad. I love spending time with my boys. Uh, and um, you know, we're uh, we're spending we're we're hunkering down now. Uh, you know, spending some good quality time during the Christmas holidays and leading up to session, knowing I'll be gone for about five months, and then and then we'll get to you know reconnect and and do it all over again. Well, I want to thank you for your time, and I want to thank you for the work that you do, and thanks for being on uh, the inaugural podcast. Uh, we'll see what people think, but uh, that was a great conversation. Thanks for well, all you Well, thank do. you, Scott. I appreciate uh, you having me on here for the inaugural podcast, and a thank you to all your listeners as well for uh, tuning into this episode. All right. Thanks, Trent.